Shit Places, a story by Sky Odsley, June 2020. The Midwest, 2008. Kyle looked at everyone's shoes and then frowned at his own clunky sneakers. To his right was his younger sister, Maddie, who'd worn a shiny white dress and silver heels to the funeral. Beyond her stood their bald father, Bill, rubbing his eyes in a faded blue suit and black loafers. And on the other side of the mound of dirt was a guy Bill had paid to be there and read some things aloud from the Bible. The bony pastor's voice was ominous and distant. Although it was the only sound, it did not seem present. Kyle could barely make sense of one word to the next. He looked from the pile of fresh mud to the trees and back to the wet dirt once more. Beneath this earth was his mother, Margaret. The fact they were the only three in attendance that day proved how small of an impression she'd made on anyone else. But though he'd never allowed himself to think much about his own feelings after seventh grade, Kyle stood there, now almost 20 years old, trying not to cry. Not because of the loss, but because of how stupid life now seemed. For a moment he realized his own mortality, that someday he would die. And when that time came, perhaps just Maddie and his dad would be at his funeral. Perhaps even just Maddie. But maybe not even her. Maybe there'd just be a different pastor or someone else paid to be there. Hear our prayers, Lord, the old preacher said, closing his Bible and bowing his head. May Margaret Palmer rest in peace. Kyle pulled off his baseball cap and held it over his chest as Maddie threw the flowers she'd brought onto the soil. Then the preacher lifted his head, opened his eyes, and stepped right over the gravesite, hiking up the cuffs of his pants as he headed down the hill toward his car without another word to any of them. Well, their dad said, loosening his collar and yanking off his tie, you kids want to get some ice cream or something? No, Maddie said, picking at afraid him. Just take me back to the house. Riley has probably called me a dozen times by now. Why did you make me leave my phone at home? It just seemed appropriate, Bill shrugged. I don't think your mother would have appreciated us bringing our phones to her funeral. She never liked it when I'd have mine at the dinner table, remember? Kyle and Maddie both rolled their eyes. Bill frowned and looked off into the trees. Truthfully, they hadn't eaten dinner at a table as a family in 12 years, and not one that their dear mother Margaret had cooked in even longer. This funeral wasn't very emotional or all that big of a deal to Maddie or Kyle, because it'd been over a decade since they'd last seen her. Back when Kyle was seven and Maddie was only five, Margaret Palmer had left the house and never returned. After an argument, one where Margaret had done most of the shouting, 
She told her husband Bill that she was going for a walk, but then she'd taken the car keys from the hook by the door, backed the family Saturn down the driveway, and sped off. And she had not returned until now, 13 years later, in a coffin. Margaret had never remarried in all of those years after abandoning her family, and she'd only worked odd jobs to remain as close to a beach as she could. But in her final years, she'd been stuck in Arizona, cleaning hotel rooms. And she died after swimming drunk in the little shithole's rusty pool and tragically getting her hair caught in a bottom drain. She'd never written any of them once. And although Kyle had tried to call her at least three different times throughout his teens, she'd never answered. Kyle assumed by this point that his mother had truly hated him and his sister, and probably hated Bill even more. But thankfully, this funeral was over, and now Kyle would never have to think about her again. The three of them walked down the little gravel path to the graveyard's entrance and climbed into Bill's car. It had only been a five-minute service. The seats they'd ridden therein were still warm, and so was the engine. It started right up. I still don't understand why she's buried here, Maddie said, staring out her backseat window. She obviously hated it here. Why did they send her back? Why didn't they just bury her in Arizona? Because we're her family, Bill said, glaring at his daughter in the rearview mirror. I'm sure they didn't know what else to do with her or who was going to pay for it. It's just a hole in the ground. I don't think it really means that much. Then why not just leave her in the pool, Kyle said. That's dark, his dad said. Even for you, Jesus, Kyle. Shut the fuck up. The funeral had put Bill on edge. Kyle hadn't seen his dad this fragile in years. I'm skipping dinner tonight, Maddie said, changing the subject and brushing a few golden curls out of her eyes. Riley is picking me up and we're going to a movie. I'll just eat something at the theater. I'm not hungry either, Kyle added. When we get back, I'm going to go for a walk. I ate some shit earlier. Bill looked at both his grown children, but gave no expression. You kids don't want to do anything with me anymore, he grumbled. We're not kids, Dad, Maddie said, as if for the umpteenth time. I know you're not, Bill retorted, raising his voice. You're both selfish assholes. Bill pulled a cigarette from his jacket and crammed it between his teeth, pushing in the car's lighter button. Rent is due, he announced, pulling out the hot coil and steadying it to suck in a drag. Seven hundred bucks each. Not this again, Maddie sighed, rolling down her window. We don't have jobs. How are we supposed to pay rent? Well, you could get jobs, Bill suggested in a cloud of smoke. Should we stop at McDonald's and pick you two up some applications? I'm not working at McDonald's, Kyle muttered. Oh, I'm aware you're not, Bill said, jabbing him with an elbow. 
but nobody's paying you to jack off in your room. Well, someone on the internet might be, and if they are, I want to see some of that money. Jesus, Dad, Maddie yelled. Gross. You too, Bill said. If that dick in the ass Riley is buying you dinner tonight, tell him to start paying your rent too. Seven hundred bucks. Leave her alone, Kyle grumbled. Just because Mom died doesn't mean you have to take it out on us. Bill jerked the wheel and brought them to a screeching halt along the shoulder of the empty county road. Then he threw the car into park, rolled down his window, and sat, flicking ash into the air. Right, he finally said to himself, not looking at either of them. For so long, I thought she'd come back, and so for that long, I've kept this family together, just the way it was when she left. In my head, I always figured she'd call or appear at the front door. Then we'd be able to go back to normal, be a family again. I told myself to keep it together in case that were to ever happen. Kyle, even when you turned 18, I let you stay at home in the hopes that your mom might still come back. And Maddie, when you graduated, I did the same thing. But she's dead now. She's not coming back. It wasn't for us? Kyle asked. No, his dad said. I did it for her. These last 13 years, I did everything for her. Why? Kyle asked. Because I love her, Bill said, looking him in the eye. And I hope, for your sake, you don't ever have to know what that kind of love is like. I used to love you. Then Bill glanced at Maddie in the rearview mirror. And I used to love you, too, he went on. But lately you both have been pissing me off, and I've realized that my love for you is no longer unconditional. There are a lot of conditions to earning it back, and the list starts with both of you paying rent. Fine, Maddie shrugged. I'll just move in with Riley. He's been asking me to anyway. I'll pack my things when we get back. Don't ask me to carry anything, Bill shot back, now visibly falling apart. I'll rent your room to the first offer I get. Kyle had seen his dad get angry at Maddie several times in the last month, mainly because of how highly she regarded her dumbass boyfriend, Riley, and how much she took for granted when it came to the many things their dad did for her. It seemed to Kyle like his dad was almost jealous of Riley, and as Kyle sat in the passenger seat, watching his father feed himself the butt of a cigarette with trembling fingers, Kyle didn't look forward to growing older. It looked tiring and painful. What the fuck are you staring at? His dad asked, glaring at him and wiping his eye. Nothing, Kyle said, looking back into his lap. What about you then? Bill asked him, tossing the rest of his cigarette into the road. You got an imaginary girlfriend you can shack up with? 
or do you want me to stop at McDonald's for an application? Those are your two options. I'll look for a job tomorrow, Kyle muttered. Bill just scoffed, slamming the car into drive and pulling back onto the road. Kyle said nothing else and stared into the ditches. So far, this had been a pretty bad weekend. First the news of his mother's death on Friday, then a whole Saturday afternoon devoted to hearing about where she'd been and what she'd been doing, followed by that pathetic Sunday morning funeral, and now his dad was having an emotional outburst. Kyle could only imagine what was in store for the evening to come. It'd definitely be just the two of them in the house. Maddie would be gone all night long for sure after an argument like this. Kyle hoped he would be able to just hide in his room. Then Bill looked at him sideways and shook his head. Forget it, his dad said, his voice hoarse and dry. Just forget it. The family car took a left onto their little street by the school's football field, and they pulled up the drive of the house, where once again Bill dramatically shifted the car into park with a heavy sigh. The rest of the ride from the graveyard had been dead silent, and arriving home proved no different as Maddie climbed out without a word, running up the steps of the porch and through the front door. The car remained running. Bill turned to his son, and Kyle noticed his dad's eye sockets had become dark and swollen. Get out, Bill said. Get out of my car. Kyle opened his door and climbed out, slamming the door closed behind him. But before he could take two steps into the lawn, his dad backed out of the driveway and sped off, taking a ride at the fork in the road before vanishing behind a row of trees. Kyle stood in the grass, not really certain what to do next. Something felt very wrong, and his chest stirred with burden. But soon, the familiar hum of Riley's Camaro roared to life in the distance. A moment later, Maddie came running out of the house with a suitcase a backpack, and her favorite teddy bear tucked under one arm. Riley's engine roared again as he cranked the gas and swerved onto their street and right up onto the lawn. Baby girl, are you crying? Riley asked through the open window. Want me to beat your dad's ass? Not now, she said, opening the car's tiny back hatch and loading in her things. Damn it. I forgot my charger. One second. She ran back into the house, and now Kyle and Riley were alone, awkwardly not looking at one another. Riley was a year older than Kyle, but they'd been in the same grade while growing up because Riley'd been held back in elementary school. He'd never graduated, however, and had stopped going to school altogether during their sophomore year. In middle school, Riley had picked on Kyle a few times, being a bit of a bully back then because of his height and ability to grow facial hair. But now, at 21 years old, Riley was just a bony mechanic 
known around town by the nickname Grease. And since his courtship with Maddie had begun, Riley had gotten it twisted in his head that somehow Kyle and him were old buddies. This was likely just performed to keep his beauty queen girlfriend happy, but over the past month, Kyle had started to think it was actually because Riley really cared about Maddie. So that made Kyle somehow also his friend, by default. Riley still had the same patch of hair on his chin and the same backwards Raiders cap he'd worn all those years ago. But his smile was no longer sinister, and he had turned soft. But just like back in the hallways of junior high, his eyes remained tough and stupid. Sup, dude? Riley asked, nodding to Kyle through the rolled-down window. How was your mom's funeral? Titan shit? Not at all, Kyle said. Bummer, Riley replied, looking toward the house. Maddie came rushing out, flailing her cell phone cord above her head. I found it, she yelled. We're all packed, baby. Riley blew her a kiss as she came down the porch steps, and Kyle cringed at Riley's pockmarked pucker. Then Maddie grabbed Kyle by the shoulder and spun him around, bending at the waist to look him in the face. Although she was a year and a half younger than him, she was several inches taller. All right, my little man, she said, cooing the belittling nickname onto her brother's nose. I guess this is goodbye for now. What do you mean, Kyle asked, bothered by her overly affectionate tone. You're just going on a date. I'm moving out, Maddie said, and I mean it this time, Kyle. I'm going to be at Riley's, so you can always call me if you need to, but I'm not coming back here. But, Kyle stammered. Despite their differences, his sister was really his only friend, other than his dad. Kyle hadn't done much socializing during high school, and his introverted personality had only spiraled since graduation. Don't leave, Kyle said, starting to sound like a child. Who's going to watch Smackdown with me? Oh, baby boy, Maddie said, touching him on the face. You're going to have to grow up one of these days. Kyle looked at her. She was right. With her blue eyes and shiny yellow hair and well-placed makeup, She was a woman, and had been for some time. But there in her shadow, Kyle was just a boy. A boy being left by his younger sibling. I love you, she said. You'll be all right, okay? Okay, Kyle sighed, looking from her eyebrows to the ground. Then Maddie climbed into the passenger seat and leaned over, kissing Riley on the mouth and using a lot of tongue. When their jaws finally parted, Riley nodded out his window at Kyle. Later, bro, he said. Catch you on the flip. 
Then the car peeled out in a spray of dirt, taking a huge wide turn through the yard and landing back on the road. And then, just like Bill, they took a right and disappeared behind the same row of trees. Now Kyle was entirely alone, standing in his yard. So with the front door hanging open and no one home, Kyle decided to just go for a walk, something he'd been doing a lot lately. Chapter 2 Bill was clearing 80 miles an hour as he ran the last stop sign of the small town's main drag and crossed the county line into a patch of trees that sloped down to the right and up to the left in a long, wide curve. The air was gloomy and all the clouds had collected into one, which made the sky look more like a sheet of ice. This was the start to Bill's normal weekday drive to work in the city, but he wasn't headed there today. He was driving straight to the airport. The day before, after seeing Margaret's cold blue body in those bright white hospital lights, he'd packed a small tote bag and thrown it in the trunk while Maddie and Kyle had been in their rooms. And overnight, as he lied awake in anticipation of the funeral, he'd made up his mind to leave once the service was over. He was bringing along the normal things a spur-of-the-moment traveler would pack, but this didn't feel like a getaway, more like a descent. In the little red bag were a few extra socks, a toothbrush, a pair of gym shorts, and a picture of his dead wife on their wedding day. He'd brought the socks in case of rain and the shorts for sleeping, but anything else wouldn't matter much. The suit he had on would work just fine. He reached the airport parking ramp and threw the car into a spot, not even minding to notice what level he was on. He left the car unlocked, tossing the keys onto the dash, and retrieved the bag from the trunk. Then he made his way to the elevators. A few minutes later, he was next in line at the front desk. Arizona, he grumbled, noticing a thirst overcome him. Whatever's next up. He coughed, wiping his brow and neck. The attendant took his payment and ID, entirely ignoring his disgruntled voice. The lines were getting long. He was thankful to not be questioned about his plans. He purchased a one-way ticket to Phoenix for substantially less than he'd been expecting. It was actually cheaper than the gas it would have taken to drive there. Your flight doesn't board until 2.30, the girl said as she handed him his boarding pass. You've got a few hours to kill. Did you need directions to hotel shuttles? Just to the hooch, Bill snickered. The girl didn't laugh, but did finally look up from her computer. Excuse me, she asked. Bill felt invisible, just like he'd hoped. Uh, The bar, he shrugged. I'll just have a drink while I wait. Oh, she said, moving her glasses up her nose. 
The only place in our dining court with alcohol is the California Pizza Kitchen. It's three back from the entrance E-19. Nice, Bill said, sliding the bag over his shoulder. Thanks. Peter Frampton was playing quietly as he entered and wove among the pizzeria's tacky decor. He took the bar stool furthest from the doors, stuck the bag between his ankles, and pulled out his wallet, counting the cash he had on him. A young boy, not much older than Kyle, with a haircut quite similar, came over with a rag, a menu, and a plastic cup of water. The kid wiped down the bar between Bill's elbows and sat the water in menus beside him. Happy hour all day on Sundays, the boy said. You want bread? The boy's voice even had that same childish squeak as his own son's. Bill held in a breath, staring at the cup of water beside him and thinking about Kyle and the effects this all could have on him. Although he was 19, Kyle was still a child, and Bill was now abandoning him. This kid's shaky hands were filling Bill with guilt. No thanks, Bill said. I'm probably not happy enough for happy hour anyway. The boy nodded, removing the dinner menu. I'll just take a shot of whiskey or something, Bill said, a little uncertain of himself. Maybe a beer, too. We got a lot of both of those things, the kid said, turning around and looking at the bottles and tap handles. Which ones do you want? Bill squinted and wrinkled his nose, trying to read the labels. I don't really drink much, Bill said. I actually haven't drank in years. What's good? What do you drink? I'm not old enough to drink, the boy shrugged, picking up his rag. We sell a lot of shock top. That's the one with the orange slice wearing sunglasses on it. And my coworker Jeannie says that Jack Daniel's Tennessee apple is pretty good. Sold, Bill said. Give me one of each. The boy poured Bill the tallest glass of beer he'd ever seen, and then portioned him a shot with a small metal spoon and placed both drinks on napkins. You like bartending? Bill asked, just trying to be polite. I used to bartend when I was younger. It's okay, the kid said. It isn't what I was expecting. I hear that, Bill said. The boy pointed to the TV above them. You want me to put the game on, he asked. Just college football is on right now. Nah, Bill said, taking the first foamy sip from his beer. I'm just waiting on my flight. We get a lot of that here, the kid said. Bill laughed. So where are you going? The boy asked. It's a long story, Bill said, hesitant to elaborate. We get a lot of those here too, the kid said. That's the hardest part about bartending so far. 
listening to all the long stories. Then I'll spare you, Bill said, putting up his hands. I'm just flying to Phoenix. You gonna see the Grand Canyon? The boy asked, organizing some menus. Probably not, Bill replied, thinking about his answer only after he'd said it. Maybe, I guess. But probably not. You gonna check out the desert? The kid asked. I might see some of it, Bill shrugged, picking up his beer. I might have to do some driving, so... Perhaps. The boy only nodded, sticking the pile of menus into a drawer. Then a moment of silence passed, and Bill glanced up at the television screen, figuring the conversation was over. But then a new voice spoke up from a few bar stools down. Road cones and stoplight wires, the stranger said. You might see some desert, but you're going to see a shitload of road cones and stoplight wires. That's all Phoenix is. Bill turned to his left and studied the pizzeria's only other bar patron. A wrinkled desperado, not much older than himself, but far more haggard. The guy seemed completely aware of his own unkemptness, and had done his best to hide it beneath a big leather bomber jacket. But his slacks had holes in the knees, and his boots were curled up at the toes, and white with road salt. A dusty suede fedora was thrown on the bar top beside him, and his gray hair and beard were one tangled mess wrapped all around his head. His face was so hidden that his eyes were hard to find among the shifting shadows beneath his giant yellow eyebrows. He was clutching a cup of coffee firmly to the counter as if to keep it from taking off in flight. But his cocked head just stared up blindly at the same television Bill had been watching. He didn't look toward Bill at all, continuing to talk as his thumbs moved around the cup's steamy brim. They ain't got any titty bars in Phoenix neither, he said into the air. Don't know what all them construction jackheads do for fun without titty bars around. The whole town's under construction. Every place you look, the road's torn up and the winders is plucked out. Single lane blacktop the whole ways around. Orange fences a mile long in both directions. A man of construction or destruction would find himself plenty of work in Phoenix. But he ain't gonna see himself no dollar set of titties. And for that, it makes no sense why a fellow would go there to work. Unless, of course, he really needs the money, I suppose. But ain't no amount of money worth spending time in Phoenix. The town itself is pure shit. Ain't a goddamn thing in Phoenix to do but sit in traffic and lose money on their crooked-ass lottery. One liquor store for every five square miles, and not one carries a bottle of gin under thirty damn dollars. No reason to like Phoenix at all. But there's countless reasons to hate the place. Why don't you tell us how you really feel? Bill chuckled, lifting his beer. The man didn't look over, 
but answered with his eyes still locked on the television. Fine then, he said, rolling one shoulder. The truth is, that's where my ex-wife lives. She's got a place with a rich old fart that took her in for her smooth legs. She isn't much to look at, but her legs are worth a long stare. My daughter lives there too, just down the street from Daddy Dollars and that cooked shrimp he took off my hands. They love it down there. I gotta go at least twice a year to see my grandkids. Every time I get to town, I ask around at construction sites about titty bars, and each time I slump back to the Econo Motel, bone dry and sour mad. Ain't a thing in that patch of sand to remind a man of life's halfway decent amenities. Must be run by Christians. Fucking assholes. I told myself the next time I went to Phoenix, I was going to prepay a nice gal or two from Atlanta to go with me. Last week, I did just that. Bought three round-trip tickets for myself and two real plump hens. Packed my own gin and was prepared for the first time ever to get to Phoenix and have an all-right time. Well, that sure is some story, Bill said, glancing at the boy behind the bar for agreement. So what happened? Bitches showed up with their pimp, the guy said with a cough. The fucker robbed me at gunpoint in the parking ramp about an hour ago. Took the tickets, my money, my gin, everything. Beat me up some, too. That's how I tore the knees of my pants, kicking and flailing that wail off of me. Him and the gals are on their ways to Phoenix right now with three bottles of Seagram's and every pair of socks I own. As for me, well, I ain't even got the quarters to pay for this here coffee. With that, the man lifted the cup and drank the whole thing down in one loud slurp, then neatly sat the empty mug aside, rose to his feet, and drew up his hat. Wait a second, Bill said, reaching out as the man passed him. The man stopped and looked him in the face, surprised as if nothing previous had transpired between them. How much does he owe you, Bill asked the bartender. Just a dollar fifty, the kid said, wrestling a trash can back into a corner. Put it on my tab, Bill said, offering the stool next to him. Have a seat, would you? I ain't looking for sympathy, the guy said, weary but taking the seat all the same. And I don't need no company. Me either, Bill agreed. But it sounds like you know Phoenix, and I'm headed there for the first time. I already told you all there is to know, the man shrugged, motioning to the boy for a refill of coffee. The place is a dump. Best advice I can give you about flying to Phoenix for the first time is to stay on the plane, take it all the way to Tijuana, and get a mamacita to tattoo your name on her ass. Bill's eyebrows curled upward. This alternative actually sounded pretty appealing. Perhaps he'd cross the border at some point, but Phoenix was still his first destination. I hear you on that, Bill said, slowly spinning his shot glass around on the bar top. But I gotta spend at least a few hours in Phoenix. I'm looking for someone. Who? the man asked. 
Well, she's actually dead, Bill admitted, lifting the whiskey and staring into it. Oh, the man said, unfazed. I've been there, too. But you mentioned the Econo Motel, Bill said, drinking the entire shot and coughing out a few more words. That's where I'm going. Nothing special about the place, the man confessed. There's at least a handful of them within the city limits. Which one are you aiming to check out? I don't know, Bill said. I didn't figure there'd be more than one. That's upsetting news. Do they all have outdoor pools? Only the one on the south side has a pool, the man said, squinting. Last time I was there, it was dirtier than shit. Bill pushed aside the shot glass and stuck out his hand. I'm Bill, by the way, he said. Roy, the man grumbled, reluctantly introducing himself as well. Mind if I have a sip of that beer? By all means, Bill said, handing him the glass. Roy took a long drink and then stared off as he wiped the foam from his mustache and beard. I'll get you another ticket, Bill said, standing up, pulling out his wallet, and tossing a 20 down for the kid. You can finish that beer. I'll be right back. No sense in making two trips to this dump, Roy said, chugging the rest of the beer. I'll just come along with you. I gotta take a leak anyhow. Bill slung his bag over his shoulder and gave the boy a parting salute. Roy, on the other hand, quickly made for the door, walking with a bad hunch and slight limp. What time's our flight? Roy asked over his shoulder. I got time for a long leak? No rush, Bill said. Take your time. Give me five, Roy mumbled, crossing the food court and entering a restroom. Bill stepped out under the open cafeteria and pulled out his phone, scrolling through it. He pulled up Kyle's number, but only stared at the screen, hesitating to press the dial icon. Then he took the phone in both hands and glanced around, faking a cough as he tried to break the thing in half. He failed, however, looking rather weak as he flexed and twisted, attempting to at least crack the screen. But it wouldn't even bend. So instead, he walked to the nearest wastebasket and just threw the phone away. Then he pocketed a few napkins from a dispenser and went back to the restrooms, leaning against the wall to wait for Roy. Chapter 3 Kyle made it three blocks before his thirst set in. A heavy addiction to Mountain Dew made it hard to go more than an hour without at least a sip. But it was Sunday, and the gas station up the road from his place was closed. He'd have to press on. His routine walk took him past his old high school football field and the old folks' home on the edge of town marked by blackened trees and the old water tower which stood like a sleeping robot upon skinny legs with a face of dull steel and rust. 
This area of town smelled like pee, partially due to the rotten stench wafting from the old folks' home, but mainly from the exceptional amount of actual pee flooding the dead grass beneath the water tower. Every athletic group from the high school began and ended their daily outdoor runs right at its base. So it was also where everybody peed rather than walking the length of the football field to the bathrooms inside. Boys and girls. Soccer, baseball, wrestling, basketball, football, track. All of it. Even the cheerleaders. They all peed together out there under that big round shadow. And with no sun to boil it away, the gallons of urine only stood like a cold swamp each spring and summer before hardening through the chilly fall and freezing through the long winter. The bitter smell hit Kyle in the eyes as he turned up the gravel path back toward his house as he always did. These walks rarely had a destination or purpose outside of getting some air and clearing his head. Even though they were aimless, they usually cut the exact same path. Down two blocks, over another, come to the end, then back again. But today felt a whole lot different. There was a lot on Kyle's mind. He wouldn't be returning to the same house he'd woken up in that day. Maddie was really gone. Perhaps not forever, but definitely for the night. And for the first time, so was his dad. Although he wasn't certain how, Kyle just knew his dad wasn't coming back. He'd seen it in the old guy's tired eyes as he'd barked at Kyle to get out of the car. Kyle didn't consider himself perceptive and wasn't the kind of kid to even use a word like perceptive. But during that silent ride home from the funeral, he'd picked up on his father's change in attitude because, sadly, he'd felt it before, a long time ago, when his mom had driven off for good. He was only a little boy back then, but at the table that night, even before his parents' argument had begun, Kyle had sat beside his mother, silently watching the way she chewed her food, knowing exactly what each flex of her chin meant. She was done. It was all over. Only a matter of minutes before everything gets to change. So when it happened, when she'd thrown her fork at Bill, kicked her chair over, and ran to the door to pull on her shoes, seven-year-old Kyle had said nothing, had made no attempt to stop her. He'd only sat there listening to his little sister scream as his parents wrestled each other for the keys. There was nothing that could be done. Kyle had already learned that by the way she chewed those last few bites. And here, so many years later, his dad had been smoking that cigarette the same way. Kyle wondered if he'd ever see his dad again. The burden of Bill running off meant a lot. No more food, no more car, nobody to buy toilet paper. 
Then the list became even longer as Kyle reached his driveway. No one to pay the bills. What about the TV? No one to get him his quarters at the grocery store for all his recycled Mountain Dew bottles. No one to do his laundry. No one to clean the bathroom. No one to do the dishes. How the fuck did grown-up people survive without a parent around to take care of them? Kyle wanted to run into the house and dive into his bed, or onto the couch and just play a video game until all these worries subsided. But he knew that wouldn't work this time. Because his dad wouldn't be there to make it all right. To hand him a plate of sliced summer sausage and cheese and pat him on the head. Tonight, Kyle would have to get his own plate down out of the cupboard. He'd have to find the knife himself. And he'd have to slice off his own little rings and squares and arrange them into a pattern. But doing all of that sounded awful, not comforting at all. And if he just went home and turned on his Xbox, it'd get dark outside quick. And then Kyle would be completely alone in the house. Overnight. Kyle was afraid of the dark and hated the bumps and hisses and rattles that came up from the basement stairs. The thought of spending the night in the living room right beside that basement door, well, that sounded impossible. And the idea of spending the night way back in his bedroom all alone in the house, well, that was just not going to happen. So thankfully, amid his staggered and dragging steps up the gravel drive, Kyle came to a conclusion. One he arrived at often whenever faced with a night alone. He would continue past his own house and make the ten-block journey to his grandmother Pat's house. She might not fix him up a plate of meat and cheese, and the only fun thing there to do was play his old dusty Super Nintendo, but at least her basement door was on the outside of the house. And she would definitely be home. That much was absolutely certain. Chapter 4 Kyle and Maddie's grandmother Pat had been born in 1951. The daughter of a farmer and someone other than that farmer's actual wife. So for that reason, she'd been raised by her aunt in a town far away from all her many other siblings. Through the 50s, she'd been Patricia Gale Robertson. But by the spring of 1967, everyone just called her Pat. She played the tambourine and sang in a band named Blue Wave. Music was the rising scene that year, even in the dull Midwest. And although she wasn't attractive by Hollywood standards, she had nice cleavage. Her legs looked good in cowboy boots, and big sunglasses kind of fixed the rest. Plus, she could really sing. 
Sing with real soul, like Nina Simone, but angrier. Blue Wave had a song make it on the radio. The Prayers of a Girl. A song Pat wrote on the guitar all by herself. But the lead guitarist of Blue Wave was a bearded fellow with turquoise rings on each finger and flower patches on his jeans. A real poet and philosopher named Dennis. Dennis had somehow taken all the writing credit when the record contracts were signed. And a month later, he'd gotten Pat pregnant, stolen back his tambourine, and left her at a bus stop when she'd gone inside to use the bathroom. Blue Wave was on their way to San Francisco, but Dennis had pulled the van over in Nebraska and left his expecting backup singer girlfriend along the side of Highway 80 at a truck stop ironically called the turning point. Pat had to hitch rides all the way back to her aunt's house. A few months later, she'd given birth to the baby, a girl she named Margaret. But then she quickly left the child in the care of her aunt to try to make her own way west. But she only made it as far as Las Vegas, where she'd settled for a job cocktail serving in her bra. But at least it was Vegas, a place where she could sing on stages all night long. It was the 70s by then, and for a while, she even maintained an annual affair with Don Henley. But the spotlights faded dimmer each night. The audiences became sparse and stoned. Then the 80s happened, and none of the nightclub owners thought she looked as good in heels and shoulder pads as she had in cowboy boots and corduroy. So one sorry-ass Thursday in 1989, just after midnight, Pat was headfirst in a pile of cocaine when her dressing room phone rang and her aunt came on the other end, telling her that her little baby Margaret was about to have a baby of her own. Somehow, 20-some years had flown by like a white-winged dove and now Pat was suddenly an expecting grandmother. It took two years, but eventually Pat caved, gave up on her dreams, and at the age of 39, moved back to the Midwest to be near her grandchildren, because now there were two of them by that point. Once there, she'd gotten a job running karaoke, and bought a little house in the same small town Margaret and her square-peg son-in-law, Bill, had settled in. But when Pat witnessed her daughter run off the same way that silver-tongued Dennis had, and the same way she herself had, suddenly life no longer contained poetry. Art meant nothing, and time became a thief. Whether it was her unfaithful father's fault, Dennis's fault, God's fault, or just Margaret's fault, it didn't matter anymore. Pat had failed at being a singer, failed at being a lover, 
failed at being a mother and had now failed at being a grandmother. So to fix this, she drank Budweiser, smoked Salem's, and left her door unlocked in case either of her poor, abandoned grandchildren needed a place to eat or use the toilet. It was the best she could do. Life had removed her warmth and compassion, but through the late 90s, she'd softened to the idea of keeping the Super Nintendo at her house and even allowed that poor sucker Bill to bring the kids over on holidays and share some pie. Still, her only joy came from singing when she hosted karaoke. But not a drop of love remained in Pat, which made the Budweiser's always go down cold and hard. Pat was sitting at her small kitchen table, drinking her eighth beer of the day when Kyle came stomping down her sidewalk. Pat had turned down the invitation to the funeral. Funerals were not her kind of thing. And the news of her estranged daughter's death had made for a confusing day prior. But still, as always, to get through it, she was having a drink alone, listening to Don Henley sing Desperado and staring at her original copy of Blue Wave's first album, hanging framed on the wall. In the band photo, she looked so young and happy, despite the giant sunglasses covering most of her face. The front door hung open, held back to the wall with a boot, but the screen door was closed, so Kyle knocked. Yeah, Pat yelled, turning down the music. What is it? Uh, hey, Grandma, Kyle said through the screen. Mind if I come in? The timid little boy had such strange manners like this. He must have inherited those from his nerd of a father. Whatever, Pat grumbled, turning the record back up. Kyle entered and pulled off his hat, but just stood in the entrance. His grandmother always made him nervous. She was never outright mean, but she was almost always quietly upset, and she never had much to say. Well, Pat asked, giving him a stern look. What the hell is it? You ain't sad from the funeral, are you? No, Kyle said, shaking his head. Well, what is it then? Pat asked impatiently. Dad left, Kyle said quietly, then immediately correcting himself. I, I mean Bill. Bill left. So did Maddie. They're both gone. We got back from the funeral, and they got into a fight, and then they both just took off. Well, that sounds about right, Pat said, taking a long drink of beer. That's how that works. Anyway, Kyle said, staring at the floor. Can I stay here tonight? I won't bother you or anything. He's really gone, Pat asked herself, not waiting for Kyle to answer. 
I didn't know that dork had it in him. Good for him. I'm sure that means Maddie will show up eventually, too. I suppose I can order us some KFC. Maddie moved in with Riley, Kyle said, interrupting her. Who? Pat asked, barely listening. Never mind, Kyle said. I'll just stay in the Nintendo room. Kyle wanted to express more of an interest in the idea of KFC, but had no money to offer, and always felt especially shy around his grandmother when she was drinking. The song on the record ended, and Pat reached over, switched off the player, and pulled another can of beer from the case on the floor beside her. She cracked it open, and foam sputtered as she brought it to her mouth and took a slurp. Why is it you don't want to stay at your own place, Pat asked, feeling already irritated. You're more than welcome, of course, but I thought you liked the Xbox you got over there more. I'm afraid of the dark, Kyle admitted, turning his ball cap in his hands. And our basement makes noises. I don't want to be there by myself. Pat stared at Kyle hard, half drunkenly confused and half actually confused. What in the shit, she mused aloud. Aren't you a teenager by now? Ain't you got some girl to spend the night with or something? Afraid of the dark? What the hell is that? Kyle stared down into the boot holding open the door. It was worn thin, and the leather inside had turned green. Anyways, Pat said, yawning, you'll have to be here on your own tonight as well. I'm hosting at the Rattlesnake from eight to close, and if that big pecker-packin' Bruce is behind the bar, I'm not coming home until morning either. But it's Sunday, Kyle whined. You never host on Sundays. All I do this week, Pat shrugged. What the fuck are you, my personal assistant? Like I said, you can stay here, but I won't be here. And with that, she reached down into the case and cracked open another beer, taking the first few sips as Kyle slumped past her and entered the Nintendo room. Chapter 5 Margaret Palmer was not actually dead. Her husband Bill was aware of this, which was why he was in such a hurry to get to Arizona. Bill had looked at the corpse the day it arrived in the morgue and stared at it hard, trying to decode its meaning. Even though he hadn't seen his wife in over ten years, the pale, dead body laid out under a sheet was definitely not her. In fairness, it did look quite a bit like her, which he found bothersome. But the drowning victim's features were not the same shape. Plus, the lifeless stranger was taller than Margaret, with much longer legs. It wasn't Margaret at all. But according to the doctors and police, this blue pile of flesh was, in fact, his dead spouse, 
finally returning home. Figuring it made no difference, Bill had just played along and had the poor girl, whoever she was, buried in his family plot. All through the service and argument with his children, Bill hadn't been struggling with loss. He'd been hounding himself as to why the real Margaret would fake her own death. Was it some kind of message? Or was it actually exactly what it seemed like? That by killing herself off, she was now permanently erasing her past, doing away with any lingering burdens, and freeing herself even further in an attempt to run farther away. Perhaps it was both. And perhaps this other woman's slender calves were the only clue she'd allowed him. The real Margaret was still stuck in Phoenix, doing the same job she'd been doing for the past few months, cleaning rooms at the Econo Motel on the south side of town. There were always two maids on service at once. The place was pretty spread out. And with the rooms being rented by the hour, there was always plenty of work for two people. Making beds, cleaning bathrooms, and dragging all the beer cans to the recycling bin. Margaret had been hired along with another woman named Gloria after they'd gone through a joint interview with the motel's manager, Brian. Although it was apparent and not all that interesting to the two ladies, Brian had repeated all through his orientation just how funny it was that Margaret and Gloria looked so much alike. By the end, when handing them tax forms, he was convinced they were sisters, perhaps even twins separated at birth. And because of this, Brian had, of course, mixed up their paperwork, and by the start of the following week, had begun calling Margaret Gloria and Gloria Margaret. Neither of them bothered to correct Brian, though, because all he did was either yell about something trivial or sexually harass them with whistles and pats on the rump. So a while later, when Gloria had drank herself to sleep by the pool one night, and died alone in that cold, dirty water. Margaret had found the body during their shift change and realized her out. The fact that Gloria was actually an estranged sibling of Margaret's is certainly interesting to point out, but it made no difference now. Gloria was dead. Although Margaret and Gloria shared the same father, that guitar-playing fucker Dennis from Blue Wave, so did a lot of other kids that grown up in single-mother homes along the barren path from Chicago to California. And now that Gloria was dead, Margaret would never learn of their kinship. But even if she had, it was a safe bet to assume Margaret wouldn't really have cared all that much. Margaret wasn't a good person. She only cared about herself, 
Her priorities were purely hedonistic. So much so that Margaret might have drowned her own sister if driven to such an extreme. But Margaret hadn't killed Gloria. Depression and booze had done it for her. And now she'd not only stumbled upon an easy way to fake her own death and erase her past, she'd also finally get Wayne all to herself. Margaret and Gloria had the same nose, the same hair, the same eyes, the same lips. They had the same hands and the same way of nervously brushing their bangs aside. And in the last year, they had even had the same job, worn the same uniform, and lived at the same motel. So it was only fitting that they slept with the same guy. In a place like the south side of Phoenix, a good man is hard to find. 70% of them are over 70. And the ones not tied down are either recently widowed and on the prowl, or hiding out from their suburban families and only looking for a quick poke. Then there were the few actually single men. But most of them are just drunk construction workers with stout hands caked in concrete and breath made entirely of mustard. A girl could try, but the thrill would not last long. Men like that slept, swung a hammer, drank, and nothing else. That was their life in three acts, a silent play with almost no dialogue and absolutely no meaning. Both Margaret and Gloria had played the role of spooning partner to a few of these roughnecks with nice, warm arms. But then they both met Wayne and sought nothing more. Wayne worked at the oil change spot down the street from the motel. He also tended bar at the Cactus Lounge where they hung out after work. Though his two jobs were much different, he wore the same ratted white t-shirt, faded black jeans, and mechanic boots to both. He'd try and wash the motor oil from his hands, but it would always remain in the cracks of his wide fingernails and the roots of his always wet blonde hair. And although his cheeks were constantly rough with day-old whiskers, he always smelled like a bar of soap. And, in the most pleasant way, was just as firm as one also. When he smiled, his crooked grin would shimmer, and inside his eyes were tiny clouds of gold and silver. But now, as Margaret lied next to Wayne, tugging the thin motel sheets up over her breasts, those pretty eyes of his were looking elsewhere. Shortly after making love that morning, Wayne had turned over and fallen asleep with his back to her, a rare act compared to his normal affectionate routine of cuddling and squeezing. Not being held was pissing Margaret off, 
Plus, he wasn't snoring, which meant he wasn't really asleep, just pretending to be. This made her even angrier. So after a few minutes of staring at the back of his head, Margaret rolled up onto her elbow, grabbed one of her shoes from the foot of the bed, and whacked Wayne directly in the ear with it. Wayne shielded his face, falling to the floor. What the fuck is it? Margaret yelled, tossing the shoe onto him. You're thinking about her again, aren't you? She just died, Maggie, Wayne said, rubbing his ear and sitting up. I think I'm allowed a period of grief. You were staring at the wall, Margaret growled. Just like all the times you'd lay here waiting for me to pass out so you could get up and sneak down to her room. I don't want to talk about this, Wayne said, picking up his pants and looking around for his shirt. I don't want to talk about it either, she said, almost spitting. I want to scream about it. I tolerated your double-timing bullshit and played it cool with that bitch because you asked me to. But now she's dead, and to hell if I'm going to play second fiddle to the memory of her. You two and your canoodling always made me feel left out. But I always bit my lip like you told me to. But there ain't no way I'm letting you roll off of me and stare at the wall. You cut that out right now. That's not how it works, Wayne shrugged, pulling on his jeans. You can't just tell me how to act, feel, and think. You son of a bitch, she yelled, throwing her other shoe at him. What do you think I've been doing this whole time? Wayne took a step back, kicked both her sneakers aside, and knelt, sliding on his boots and lacing them up. Go on then, he said, an unlit cigarette now dangling from his lips. Go on and yell it out, Maggie. Oh, fuck you, she shouted. Every goddamn moment I've acted, felt, and thought just the way you wanted me to. I let you say we were too pretty for only one face. I let you do whatever you wanted and told you nothing of how it made me feel. I acted nice for your sake, but I hated Gloria, and I'm glad she's dead. Well, I loved her, all right? Wayne confessed, choking up. A long silence passed. Birds could be heard through the window. Then Wayne bent and gathered up his shirt and hers, tossing Margaret's onto the bed before pulling his own over himself. So that's it, Margaret said quietly, picking at the collar of her balled-up uniform. She was your favorite. I get it. That's no surprise. I knew it all along. If you're trying to hurt me, you already have. Right from the fucking start. You just love being mad, Wayne said, shaking his head and looking toward the door. No. I love you, Margaret cried, throwing a pillow at him. But you won't listen to me. I just wish you'd listen to me. I hear you, Wayne said, grabbing the door and looking back. But I have to get to work. 
We can talk later at the lounge if you want. Margaret stared him in the face, waiting for him to say anything more. But he just opened the door and left, closing it softly behind him. Finally, after eight months of sleeping together, Margaret had finally told Wayne that she loved him, a feeling she'd been keeping secret since their third date. And for all that buildup, he'd only replied, I hear ya, and then left, torn up inside about someone else. Someone just like her, but younger, taller, and dead. Margaret sat slumped on the bed, listening to Wayne stomp down the rickety set of stairs and hit the pavement outside the pool. Then there were only birds again. After a moment, she lifted the uniform from her lap and buried her face in it, muffling a scream.